Hello and welcome to Extra Time, the podcast to get you thinking and rethinking the way we influence and impact the health of our nation. I'm Adam Hill, former physician and now chief executive of OnCommune. At this time, when a spotlight is being shone on our nation's health, I will be speaking with leading experts from across the healthcare and life science industry to discuss the opportunities and challenges they're facing as they work towards delivering scalable improvements in health outcomes. All my guests are leaders in their field and have interesting opinions and insights, and together we promise to provide you some inspiring and thought-provoking dialogue. I'm very pleased to introduce Professor Chris Malloy. Chris is the founding CEO of the UK's Medicines Discovery Catapult, the national research technology facility supporting the sector by industrialising and driving the adoption of new approaches to discovering medicines. Over his 30-year career, Chris has held roles in managing and developing capability in the life sciences, in addition to leading operations at Merlion and developing the world's first stratified medicine software platform using real-world data whilst at IDBS. It is not surprising, given Chris's natural ability to lead people and build world-class teams, that he has spent a portion of his career working in life science executive search. Most recently, Chris has been responsible for establishing and running the Lighthouse Labs, the biggest diagnostic lab in British history. Developed in partnership with AstraZeneca and GSK, these labs provide diagnostics infrastructure, which has the capability to test tens of thousands of patient samples each day for coronavirus. Chris, welcome. I'm so pleased to have you on Extra Time. Thank you for joining me. Great pleasure. Lovely to be here. So you've been incredibly busy over the last six months, and I think we'll come on to that in a moment. But before we discuss that, um, let's let's learn a little bit more about your career, which has been a little less than linear. Um, tell me tell me a little bit about your journey and, and what drove a, a research manager at GSK to where you are today. It's a little less than linear. I think jump off a cliff every now and then is probably one way to describe it. Um, my career started, uh, you know, somewhat formally and and traditionally uh, in the early 1990s with uh, with Big Pharma and joining Glaxo uh, in 1990, uh, learning my trade in cell biology and drug hunting uh, from a wide range of, of experts and, and uh, lifelong drug hunters. And I think that's uh, that's been something that uh, that has all that's followed me all the way through my career and drives me. Um, but then, you know, I had the opportunity after the GlaxoSmithKline merger to um, relocate to Singapore um, to a company that had spun out of, of Glaxo and uh, had taken its natural products collection and was using that collection in collaboration with other big pharma uh, around the world to search for new anti-cancer agents and new antibiotics. Um, and that was a great you know, opportunity for me, but also I felt an opportunity to drive you know, exciting medicines discovery. It's a time when people had uh, thought that natural products were, were passe, were old school perhaps, were old fashioned maybe, were mole- larger molecules at a time when um, small uh, planar molecules were, the, were very much the vogue. So uh, traveling over to Singapore was a great personal experience, professional experience. Um, and, a, and a very satisfactory one too. Uh, and during that time there, the company not only put two compounds into clinical development, but it took over uh, two European biotech companies, um, raised the largest amounts of venture capital ever raised by biotech before in Asia, um, and licensed molecules out, did the biotech thing, what biotechs are supposed to do. And very importantly, 
uh, putting antibiotics into clinical development, which I still very much have a, have a passion for. But returning then to the UK and to, uh, to IDBS, that was uh, a mission around company growth, um, but also about using informatics because medicine's discovery is a fundamentally a data science. It manufactures data. It uses, consumes data at an you know, ever-increasing and unprecedented rate. So if you can use the data better, not only can you make better decisions, but you can also collaborate more effectively. And having learned that international collaboration through my time in Asia, it was really important to me that contract research companies and their clients could collaborate better through data that better decisions could be made through the storage and use of more complex information. And the, the company IDBS, uh, in my time there, again, award-winning company, Queen's award-winning and many others, grew at a, at a great rate and did something that it had never done before, which is to get into the business of what was called at the time stratified medicine and pioneered with the Technology Strategy Board, now Innovate UK, to build the UK's first stratified medicine platform. And that was a, uh, an enterprise in which the, the company invested very strongly and my uh, you know, great thanks and, and uh, congratulations to, to Neil Kipling who uh, sponsored that activity as the, as the CEO and owner. Because what that did was it demonstrated a number of things. One, the importance of data in this new emerging area of stratified now precision medicine. It also demonstrated the sparsity of clinical information, the, the, the lack of quantity and the lack of, of um, context behind a lot of the information that we had. And the fact that we probably were five to 10 years ahead of where the market was. And it was an important experience and one that has followed me um, through, through my next moves. Then uh, I moved from the, from the board where I was a non-exec of, uh, of RSA, the international executive search company focused on life sciences, to be its chief exec. Um, and that sounds like a very sort of orthogonal move, but actually I believe strongly then and still believe now that people are the most important thing that you can have in any organization, uh, in a science organization no less. And the search for great people is not too dissimilar for the search for great drugs what you want to do is you want to have a comparative analysis of all of the the drugs or people in this case that fit the criteria and do that in a very rigorous way and it's no irony to me that actually when we pick a drug to go into into humans we do what we call candidate selection and that's exactly what we do when we hire great people. We take risk on them, we invest in them, and we hope that we're gonna get great returns. So we applied in RSA all of the drug discovery um, rigor to the process of finding great people, and guess what, it works. And then the irony of being headhunted from leading a global headhunter, um, again, was not lost uh, on me. <laughs> and, uh, and I've had three, almost four years now as the founding CEO of Medicines Discovery Catapult, bringing together technology, people, informatics, means of collaboration, all together in the service of the UK community. So uh, it's, it's been and it continues to be an absolutely fascinating, wondrous journey. So the impact of those great drug hunters that you mentioned at the top early on in your career clearly has formed the, the backbone of um, many of your experiences um, to date into, into your current role at the Medicines Discovery um, Catapult, where you have marshaled the UK's immense drug discovery capability and expertise, albeit distributed. 
to develop real system-wide impact. What are the things that you're most proud of over the last three or four years? First and foremost, immensely proud of the people who jumped off a cliff to come and join the catapult. When we started the, um, the catapult a few years ago, we had uh, no people, we had no equipment, we had uh, a vision uh, which was that the UK's immense wisdom in this space and capacity in this space and drive in this space could be harnessed to deliver support to the hundreds of biotechs in the country, 60% of which have got five people or fewer, who take immense risk, who have this enormous purpose, but sometimes need help from a national workshop. So more than 100 people jumped off a cliff, left their jobs and came to work at the Medicines Discovery Catapult. And it's the success of those people in their endeavours within the catapult, generating new intellectual property, helping other companies succeed that I am I'm most proud of. And I, and I think it, it, the culture of that organisation to say, you know, the answer is yes, what's the question? is one of those things I, I find um, you know, humbling every day. And it's, it's something that I'll come back to when we talk about the Lighthouse Project. But we do recognise in the catapult that the people who, who run and work in UK biotech do take immense risk. Uh, and it's absolutely our honour and our duty to, to stand ready to help them. It's uh, an incredibly special part of our life science infrastructure that um, we do so well in the United Kingdom, which is shout, shout louder about. Um, in in my my honest opinion, so let's talk about those lighthouse projects. Um, we uh, many of us in the life science industry, as we sat at JP Morgan in January this year, and um, could never have anticipated what was um, in hold for us in 2020. Uh, none of us anticipated having to having to steer our businesses through a pandemic, but. Even fewer of us um, would have been able to step up to the plate quite as you have, as your job description has been bent into delivering part of the national response to COVID-19. The establishment of the Lighthouse Lab infrastructure in record time, providing COVID-19 testing throughout the, the pandemic. D tell us about that experience. Tell us about the last few months. Well, uh a vital last few months for, for the UK, um, one in which it demonstrated, again, this intense sense of purpose to deliver capacity and quality um, at a time that was needed. And uh, the UK did then uh, what it does best, which is gang up on a problem. And the problem was, how do we industrialise the practice of, of RT-PCR at record time, at pace and scale and all those sorts of good things to deliver the, you know, over 100,000 capacity uh, for RT-PCR per day? And a little bit like the catapult, you know, we started with no labs, no equipment, no people, but with, um, with reagents and test kits. And it was the, the combination of four um, facilities who held up their hands and said, we will become a, a lighthouse lab of the more than 400 pieces of capital equipment that were supplied by universities, uh, SMEs, larger companies that just said, please use what we have. Some even wrote messages of good luck on the back of them. I mean, you know, and the, the more than a thousand people who volunteered and said, look, if you can use me, do. It doesn't matter what time of the day or night, doesn't matter whether it's the weekends or not, those don't exist because we're going to do this for others. And it was that 
that this project was all about. So yes, in numbers, you know, the, each of the sites was up and, and doing clinical quality, high quality testing within three weeks and three days. Yes, within the first hundred days, uh, over three million people were, were tested through the Lighthouse Labs. All of those are, are great numbers and, and uh, you know, intense sense of feeling of delivery from those people. Um, but most importantly, it was the country ganging up on this problem and making sure that we have the capacity now to be able to test and trace. Um, and we've done that in a very joined up way and, and built ourselves capacity that we didn't have six months ago. A Herculean effort from both you and, and the team, which, of course, you, you must be congratulated for, um, because without which I think we would be in a far, far worse position um, today. Um, like many parts of the health system and its response, um, you have projected diagnostics five, maybe 10 years into the future. With, with that infrastructure now in place, what, what are the opportunities, do you think, to test, trace and better stratify patients into various forms of therapies in the United Kingdom. Diagnostics are just such a critical part of the of the overall precision medicine initiative. You know whether that's in early diagnosis um, and early detection, or whether it's in the stratification of individual medicines. And I was struck many years ago by a quote from Doris Ann Williams, who was talking to me about uh, not the concept of companion diagnostics, but diagnostic dependent drugs. And it was a very interesting <laughs> bit for me, and it's one I've never forgotten and, and always will cite her on. But it was, it was important because that does recognise the absolutely, you know, the umbilicus that sits between those, those two types of innovative assets, which themselves have different times to market, they have different economic models and so on. But without the ability to understand disease understand uh, therapeutic intervention and how it affects that disease or how it affects that that patient both positively and negatively we're not going to be nearly precise enough and however far one thinks precision medicine may go the the ability to see into the, uh, the disease to fingerprint it and to be able to look at the uh, the capacity for a therapeutic to modulate it is going to be critical so you can't be a totally blind watchmaker in in medicines you know and and, and we need to see what we've done we need to see the diseases it is and how it stratifies to know whether our therapeutics going to to have a chance of being effective and then is it being Diagnostic dependent drugs. I, I I like that. I think I'm going to be stealing it from Doris Ann also. Um, as the as the pandemic moves from the acceleration to the deceleration phase, person to person transmission is suppressed through social distancing, contract tracing, positive diagnoses as a result of your efforts um, limits the the impact of further outbreaks. Where, where does the focus for the life science industry switch if we're now overcome if we've now overcome that diagnostic hurdle where do we where do we now focus we've done well in phase one uh, in terms of providing capacity to deal with that phase one i think that, that it now becomes a very different problem we we had a, a an effective lockdown here in the uk which uh, which helped reduce um infection rates and so on 
but as life returns to the new business as usual, there'll be other modes of testing that will be absolutely necessary in order to enable uh, employees to return to work, students to return to school and university, um, and us all to, to return to traveling as much as we need to or want to. Um, and those are point of care diagnostics um, uh, and point of care systems. And, and as diagnostics perhaps creep more and more into people's lives, than has ever happened before, um, you know, we will see different technologies brought to bear, all of which, which uh, will give us answers to the questions we, we want. Am I ill? Yes or no. If I am ill, I, am I ill with what? So as we get into the wintertime, you know, as we, as we uh, maybe have coughs and colds and, and symptoms, have we got symptoms of COVID or one of the four or five other very common things that we might have? Because coming up with it with you know, if you're feeling unwell, coming up with the answer, a negative answer, is only so helpful. It would be much more helpful to have a positive answer for something, even if it's not COVID, for example. And that will give us the confidence, not just um, that we are ill when we feel ill, but and that our symptoms uh, are, are accurate. But when we do have COVID, we're going to spot it. In response to the UK government's call for innovations to support the pandemic, I'm so delighted that Oncomy will be partnering with your team at the Medicines Discovery Catapult to support the development of vaccines and therapeutics. Tell us a little bit about the programme. Well, thank you. We're, we're delighted too to be working with you. And the programme here is all built upon the fact that the answer to most of the questions that we have in Medicines Discovery and Diagnostics lies in the patient. The answer is in the patient and therefore, you know, we need to be able to access those consented patient samples and patient data in some cases to enable us to answer those questions. And the activity that we're both going to be working on is firstly uh, the, the collection and the collation of COVID positive patient samples consented for use um, and then their use in identifying predictive biomarkers of disease to be able to use those biomarkers to fingerprint that disease and its severity and see how that fingerprint changes with time or changes with severity so that we can really get a, a kaleidoscopic view of that disease at a biochemical level and then tria therefore triage patients into certain therapeutic categories which enable them to get the right drug for their the right disease at the right time again back to this whole precision medicine theory and vision so by providing the samples and curating those and consenting those and, and enabling those people who give of themselves transparency to what the samples are going to be used for which is critical in my view but then to be able to use them to get that highest fidelity picture of disease that moves a patient through into effective therapeutic categories. That's where, we, that's where we've all got to go. That's a really important part of what we're doing and delighted to be doing it with you. And we are delighted also, Chris. We couldn't think of a, think of a better partner. And of course, as, as this country moves towards trying to identify the best vaccine candidates and indeed find better therapeutic candidates for, um, for COVID-19, uh, there is no, no more effective way than to build that biobank of samples um, in context, in clinical context, um, from which we can profile, as you say, fingerprint um, that immune signal and identify the best therapy for the right patient 
at the right time. Finally, Chris, if you could pick three people to sit in your seat now on extra time, who might they be and what question might you ask them? This is the hardest question you've asked me so far, but I'm very happy to, to you know, pull into my seat three people who I wish I'd, I'd had the chance to meet. One is Winston Churchill, the other one is Horatio Nelson, and the third one is D Donald Bradman. And I would ask them each a different question. I, you know, I would ask Churchill who his favourite historical figure was. Um, I would ask Nelson how he coped with only 25% of the available information. Uh, and I would ask the great Sir Donald Bradman how he felt as he walked off the pitch back into the pavilion, knowing that he would never make it 100 average. Gosh, well, that would be an incredible panel, um, if only. And I, I, I normally offer the opportunity to send them a letter and invite them on to extra time. Of course, we're not going to have that opportunity in this, in this case. But um, three titans. Um, thank you very much, Chris, for joining us on Extra Time. It's been excellent learning a little bit about your career to date and, and more importantly, um, the tremendous success that you've achieved with the Lighthouse Infrastructure. Many thanks. Thank you.